You're listening to Conversations, brought to you by TechSquare ATL. Welcome to the Hump Day Exchange. I am your host, Scott Henderson, a.k.a. Scotty Hendo on the interwebs. We're recording in front of a live audience in TechSquare, the heart of Atlanta's tech scene, and we're excited to bring you this episode of the Hump Day Exchange. This is a collaborative effort of Sandbox ATL, ATDC, and Georgia Tech's Scheller College of Business. Tonight, our topic is Crowds on Fire, and we'll talk with three experts who are each tapping into the passion of audiences and fans in different ways. If you're listening to our show for the first time, here's how the program's going to go. First, I'll invite each guest into the hot seat for a one-on-one -on -one question, focus on their perspective. Then once all three are through, we'll gather them for a roundtable conversation where they get to ask each other questions. And then we'll finish with a town hall-style Q&A with our live audience guests. All right, let's invite our first guest into the hot seat. And let's start with Mike Walbert from the A3C Festival and Conference. So Mike is the executive director of A3C Festival and Conference. A3C is all three coasts. Festival is, and conference is the preeminent hip-hop event in the U.S., commonly referred to as Hip-Hop's Family Reunion, featuring nearly, a th over a th nearly, how about a thousand, how over about a thousand it? performers, over 200 speakers over five days, while the uh, entire international hip-hop community descends onto Atlanta. Now, uh, a little bit about Mike here. Um, I'm going to talk about you so you don't have to talk about you. Great. Okay? Sounds good. Uh, shortly why after I, graduating from the University of Southern California's Marshall School of Business with a degree in entrepreneurship. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, Mike entered into the music industry in about 2008 after starting SMK Productions, a music production and branding company with his close friend Blake808, Blake German. For those curious, SMK does stand for Supermarket Knife Attack. Correct. Right? Awesome. Good. My research <laughs> is good. All right. In addition to all his work with A3C, he's uh, consulting with brands and small businesses and startups. But you might also recognize him from his escapades on Property Brothers <laughs> when he and his brother were featured in episode 600. Escapades, nice. And the episode's title, Bachelor Brothers Fly the Nest. Is that right? Yeah. It's, it, I thought it was Brothers Helping Brothers. No, it was Bachelor Brothers Fly the Nest. All right. They really played off the fact, I need to do some more they, they really played off the fact that you and your brother were living at home. Correct. Yeah, he's right. So, all right. So They wanted it? us to really dive into... I, Another, yeah, another podcast. Going. Keep man. going. Yeah, no, this is good. So they wanted us to do all these like we're stepping on each other's toes and like because we were living in a pool house at the time, and they, and they kept playing the story of like tell talk to us about like what it's like when you bring girls back to your pool house. And I'm like, <laughs> no, I'm not. No, that's not like, that's not what I'm going to do on HGTV. Like this is ridiculous. So we we handed up as much as we could. It was actually a lot of fun. It looked like a fun episode. Yeah. It was really cool to see. Highest rated episode ever. Was it really? No, I'm just... Highest one in the number 600s? Maybe? Yes. All right. Yes. All right, so um, A3C, big deal. Takes over Atlanta. It's going to be taking over Atlanta pretty soon. Um, I, what's interesting this year is that you guys have partnered with Atlanta's Center for Civic Innovation um, uh, on something called A3C Action. Right? And... Um, Basically, if I understand correctly, you're, you're going to be uh, helping to find, support, invest in kind of new ideas. Yeah. To, so talk a little bit about that. Sure. What is this thing? Sure. This is year two of A3C Action. We launched it last year. Um, after kind of a, an internal growing uh, self-pressure of, of doing more for the community that we served. And I think uh, we had... Uh, took a, we had taken a very passive role in the past about allowing nonprofits to, you know, activate on our festival grounds and uh, we might do an email blast, but it was very, you know, uh, 
you know, non-long-term. So what we want to do is really have an impact, have a tangible impact on the community. And what we did was uh, after meeting the center, uh, Rohit at the Center for Civil and Human, uh, Center for Civic and Innovation. Yes. Something like Jesus. CCI. Let's make it easy CCI, on CCI, thank you. We, we have been drinking from Ogier, yeah. bartender. So um, what we decided is we want to actually find and support our organizations already doing great work. Um, so kind of leap of faith last year, we put out a, a call to action or RFP and said, you know, if you guys are doing great work and you're using art and, and music and hip hop culture to serve underserved communities, um, let us know and, and kind of put out a $10,000, um, kind of pitch night as the, as the kind of cap off of what the event was year two, uh, we had a hundred. So we had about 75 people apply last year. It was really great. This year we had 140 applicants over two months. Um, we've picked our top seven finalists. We were trying to pick five and really couldn't narrow it down. Mm -hmm. um, it's really, it's really tough um, when we had so many great organizations this year. But um, yeah, there five of them are not from Atlanta. We're flying them in, putting them up. We go through two days of uh, business and pitch training. So we're we're linking them up with mentors in the city. Um, the center, the CCI is putting them through pitch training. Most of them, or some of them, have never pitched for money before. Mm. These are folks that are super passionate, very creative, and, and honestly are just busting ass working. And they don't, they're not out there asking for money oftentimes, they're just doing it. So um, there's a lot we can learn from them, but we're also trying to have them leave with much more than money and, and leave with experience and, and connections and um, a lot of tools and resources that they didn't have coming into this. Uh, let's let's go back so folks who are not familiar with sure. A3C, um, and and let's kind of set that stage. I mean, hip hop culture has really become this juggernaut, right? Sure. And and you you you've built an amazing festival experience here, and you've got people f from all over flying in um, and participating. How do you how do you balance that that um, love and respect for the art form? Yeah. With the reality of running a business that is this festival. Yeah, it's tough. I, I think um, the, <laughs> the fun, kind of funny and short answer would be we wouldn't be able to do it if there wasn't a business, right? And we realized this uh, when I got involved, it was a losing venture. Mm. It, it would lose money every year. Um, first two or three years I was involved, it was a break-even event. And we realized really quickly that if we didn't turn this into a business and, and we couldn't survive and live off of it, um, and we couldn't build something bigger than this, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't going to be something. So we had to take kind of uh, a step back and take our fan hat off and, and approach this uh, with, uh, yeah, with, with a business plan and, and actually you know, try to put a solid business together because you can't serve your community if you're not doing mm -hmm. you know, all those things in the back so end. So what, what was that like in terms of how, did, how have you been able to not get burned by the passionate audience that is A3C's audience? Yeah, I mean, I, I can't say we're, we're completely, you know, I, I would say some of our decisions have been irrational, right? Like, we oftentimes will make a fan decision, uh, meaning, like, we might book an artist or, or do something last minute that we're just like, oh, that we can't not do this. This is so cool, so amazing. Mm -hmm. um, I would say probably our, our team keeps us in line. We have a great team we work with, so. So how many people, I mean, to pull off yeah, agency, sure. how many people work for you and how many people are, like, yeah. volunteers? Or, and then there's like yeah. probably an in-between like right. part-time so seasonal. It's definitely tiered. So uh, there are probably at this time, um, 
10 to 12 folks that really are working on A3C, but then another 20 that are project managers and project leaders. So A3C Action has a project leader. We have a, a leader of special events, and they're not full-time people, right? But uh, they are what we would call the larger A3C family. So probably around 24 people are in the A3C family. Um, and then on site, we'll ramp up and we'll have probably 150 volunteers and stage managers, coordinators. Um, so probably between 150 and 200, uh, 200, 250 people kind of. Dang. Yeah, it's it's a lot. Do you have any uh, kind of ever done any estimates on how many people hours have to pull off the festival? Like total? I don't want to just cry <laughs> myself to sleep, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I try not to think about what I make per hour. No, or, I'm talking about all that. No, no, no I know. Free volunteer work, right? I try not to think about any of that because <laughs> it's it's <laughs> all of that is uh, very depressing. Uh, we put a lot of time into this, and it's. You know, people are like, oh, what do you do during the off season? And I was like, what, what off season? Like, right. you know, like I'm starting to work on next year's the day after this this one closes, and you know, it's not as busy, but it's it's different work. You know, it's it's bigger planning, long term thinking. It's uh, more strategy, less like I'm right. tactically deciding on 100%. the color of cups and. There you go. Whatever. Yeah. So, I mean, I've heard uh, fo different folks like Daddy O um, and, and from Sets of Sonic fame and, and James mm -hmm. Andrews talking about the similarities between entrepreneurship and hip hop. What, what, what do you see? I mean, you're, you're in the hustle when it comes to yeah. the festival and, and entrepreneurship, but also you're in the hustle of hip hop. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's funny. We're, we're having a, a panel about it um, that I believe you might be on. <laughs> uh, so I think when people say that, and it, it rings true to me because I think there's the, the word that comes to mind is hustle, right? Like every entrepreneur has a strong passion and they work their ass off. And typically any successful entrepreneur is working harder than most people. You're not seeing someone that's like, oh, I fell on this thing and, you know, wow, look, I, you know, I created this great business and it just kind of happened. Like no one ever talks <laughs> like that. That's never a story. It's uh you know, I, I had an idea and I worked on it for a long time, or at least I worked really hard for a short, you know, I sprinted. But I think that the similarities are, are just a hustle. Like, you know, every, every story is different for mm -hmm. an artist or um, an entrepreneur, but oftentimes it starts with a leap of faith. And as an artist, you have to have that. You know, if you really take it seriously, are you going to quit your day job and do this full time? How are you getting your name out there? I think the persistence and and the energy and drive it takes to do both those are extremely similar and, and almost cut from the same cloth. Um, one's putting themselves towards their own brand and their own music, their own creativity. The other one towards their product, but very similar like tactics and drive. Mm -hmm. So uh, how does a guy like you get involved in A3C? I mean, you, did you grow up here in Atlanta? I did, yeah. So I grew up in Atlanta. Um, I went to Padilla High School, which I, to this day, you know, uh, have a great relationship with the community there. A lot of my friends are from there. My mom taught there for 27 years. Mm -hmm. So like my two older brothers went there um, and continue to stay in touch with a lot of the teachers and, and, uh, and, and the alumni from, from Padilla. But how that ties in is when I graduated from USC, moved back to Atlanta, um, I guess word kind of got out that I was like the guy to talk to if <laughs> you had a business idea. Uh, so... Very quickly, you got a degree in it. You might. As well I, be that's the, the thing. Like, so right. I started Hotland Hot Sauce, like with some buddies, and then from there, I just would be hit up a lot from folks and and help consult for a few small businesses. Tried to start up a couple other things, and two of the guys who came up to me were music producers and said, "We want to start a music production company. 
is that something that, you, you know, can you help us do that really just extending the hand? And I, uh, you know, kind of helped them start a company and that was all it was at first it was like, yeah, I'll, you know, I'll help, I'll help manage this and help start it. And that was SMK. Mm-hmm. So, you know, everything from like getting the LLC set up in a bank account, like all the, the logistics stuff, but also like, what are we going to do? Like, what's mm-hmm. the revenue stream? Like you guys want to make music, but how the fuck are you going to make money? Mm-hmm. Am I allowed to cuss? Uh, we, we do cuss. Good. Right. From time to time. All right. Uh, <laughs> yes, of course. All. We're, it's all always nice to have at least one of your episodes and your podcast have explicit. So thank you. Good. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> um, <laughs> that private uh, private schooling kind of guy. <laughs> um, yeah, no, probably very liberal. Probably cussed, <laughs> probably cussed a couple times there. So yeah, that's how I that's how I kind of really got into music. I never. You know, I was a, I was a radio DJ and I always loved hip hop, but like never saw it as a career path. Never, never saw myself getting into music and kind of just fell into it. And with those guys, it, it became something where I would spend 10% of my time. A couple months later, I was like spending 25% of my time. And then it got to about 50% of my time. Um, and then, you know, after a while, I just kind of threw myself into it and then found myself managing two other artists um, and consulting for, you know, doing events and consulting. And that's through that met A3C, the Brian over at A3C. Hmm. And so um, it's, it's really grown uh, in yeah. the last couple of years in terms of how, how many years now has it been around? So the brand, so A3C was, had its first event uh, 12 years ago. This will be the 12th year. Wow. I got involved in 2008, six years ago, um, and that's when uh, it went more from like a three-day showcase of hip-hop artists to um, – started the trajectory of, of turning it into like a much larger conference festival experience, mm-hmm. a more robust experience. And two and years after that, hip hop, I mean, it's music, but it's more than music. There's, there's uh, so many, there's even yeah. academic programs and yeah. PhDs that have studied this. Right. So what is, what are, what are the kind of lessons that you've, you've seen learned you know, over the years that you've been involved with A3C growing the festival? A lot. Well, so a couple things, uh, a couple of media things is, is listen to your audience. So, and test things out, but always get, you know, get feedback, get data. So the, the reason we have so much conference stuff is because when we tried it out, you know, four years ago by doing like two panels before a showcase, it like mm. really put it together like haphazard and they were just packed mm. and, and we were just kind of shocked. We, you know, we were like, okay, that's, that's actually, you know, the next year was six panels. And then, and then, that, then that, really the, the year two after doing panels, we realized that maybe that's where the business should be going. Um, and again, just inspired by the enthusiasm of our audience, a lot of who are the music makers, the creatives, and industry folks who mm-hmm. are hungry and thirsty to learn, to network, um, and, and to kind of stay on the cusp. I, I would say another thing is don't try to do everything at first, mm-hmm. I think one of the one of the one of my big lessons was, and again, I, I won't shy away from saying this, but South by Southwest was an inspiration for what we do, and actually came up with the idea of like a, a, really a hip hop version of South by Southwest on a sixteen hour drive home from mm. South by Southwest. Yeah, it's, it's it's always great to be inspired by that. Did, they oh my god! March, and right? two fifteen passenger vans full of artists and and being like, why did we drive 16 hours to do a show? <laughs> like, um, but I, I, you know, I think I saw a real niche and a need in the community. There was not, it was such an unscratched, uh, itch that mm-hmm. I was like, this is, you know, right time, right place, right guy. But 
I tried to do too much. Mm. So I tried to become South by Southwest like that. Overnight, right? Overnight. It's like, okay, we got a tech track and we got a music track and a fashion track. And I was like, you know, and everyone's like, what do you know? Like there, you can see there's just a disconnect with the audience and no, you know, everyone's trying to follow you where your head is. And, and then I just be like, okay, cool. You know, we're, <laughs> don't worry about all that other yeah. shit. It's easy to fast forward through the, the, the 10 years that Hugh Forrest and the whole team at Interactive went through this wilderness of 10 years of, Trying to no one, it was under everyone's radar, and then it, it, when social media comes, it just hit an inflection social point. Media, they finally found their voice right around the right time, yeah. And then they, they've accelerated way past the music, way past the film. They are the biggest of the three out there, sure. Now. But most people from the outside in, looking in say, Oh, that just happened quickly. They figure that out. No, it took 10, 12 years of making yep. huge mistakes, but no one was watching, so <laughs> they didn't yeah. crater it, right? It's great. No, being able to adjust year from year and learning from that, like great great early lessons um we're not huge investments but just you kind of like okay that's not the path we need to be going now well i've got um so much more to ask you and i will yeah. have you back on the second and the third segments but uh where can people find you on the interwebs so me you can't unless you're watching hgtv episode <laughs> 600 of property brothers uh but a3c you can find everywhere so a3cfestival.com uh twitter we're at a3c on instagram we're at at A3C Festival, and we have an app, so just download the app. Like, why don't Perfect. don't go to any of those things? Actually. Do that. Just download, Do that. and the then app. come come out to Atlanta in October, October so five through nine. If you guys want to have a, a pretty unique and special experience, um, again, download the app, and I don't, you know. And you've got the the the, the A3C action will be uh, wrapping up during during the middle of that. Or is that so we so we yeah so we've picked our seven applicants. Um, so you know it's too late to apply, but. Um, the pitch night is uh, Friday, October 7th uh, from 5.30 to 7 p.m. And we've got seven amazing organizations. Again, you can find those if you uh, Google seven A3C action finalists. It'll come up on a, on a blog Boom. post. There it was. Uh, yeah. All right, Mike. Well, thank you. You made it through the hot seat? Woo, barely. Barely. All right. So as, as you clear, let's bring the next guest. We've got Roger Lopez from Sidekick. Hopefully he's got his drink uh, poured and he's ready to go. This is on his third shot of tequila. Uh, Roger Lopez, 18 years of marketing leadership, both at the I think it's 19 now, but 19. Uh, you're, you're, you, the bio you after sent 15, me. you stop counting. There it is. All right, so you've been uh, at billion dollar a year organizations and startups that are striving to be that billion. You can thank uh, Roger for his role that he served in the phenomenon. If you have kids, known as Elf on the Shelf. Sorry. <laughs> he's now, he's now uh, using his expertise to lead Sidekick's marketing and consumer, I mean, customer uh, success team. Uh, and Sidekick is now the leading influencer marketing platform for some of the biggest brands like Logitech, CBS Interactive, Rock Band, and more, plus some of the world's top esports teams. But you really need to know Roger because he holds the Guinness Book of World Record for the world's longest wall of fire. You can Google this up and see on the Guinness Book of World Records. It's the longest wall of fire measured, and uh, because it is Guinness and they're UK, they use meters, 3,102.35 meters, which is 10,178.3 feet long. So over 10,000 feet long wall of fire created by the Marine Corps Community Services during the 2009 MCAS Yuma Air Show in Yuma, Arizona. Over 37,000 people were there to witness an 
uh, and you can Google it and see the entire thing online. Yeah, yourself. or you can come to my house. I have a certificate at home. Uh, <laughs> and we'll share a, 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 yeah, a, a, I mean, a pint give, of Guinness, right? Uh, some of you guys have seen the, uh, the guys have probably seen the movie Apocalypse Now. Yeah. So, for example, we that's, use... That's really, I mean, that's a gender so, issue you have so, there. Well, I, my wife's never seen it, so <laughs> I, I can I speak from that type of experience, but that explosion... Your sample of one. And this totally denigrates my entire first question. Hey, that, that explosion, <laughs> the easiest way to explain it is it used about four times more fuel than it took to do that scene, uh, and about eight times the size from that scene. So just imagine watching that movie, and it was about eight times the length and the height from that one scene. And actually happened on tequila shots. <laughs> the idea to do that as our 50th anniversary of the base. <laughs> Thank you, tequila. Uh, sorry. Uh, I've never had any good decisions. About <laughs> hey, that was a good one. Good. Well, uh, I'll say this. Without a doubt, Roger, you're one of the, uh, the brightest online marketers I've ever met. Um, and it's because you, you seem to tie everything to human behavior. Um, or maybe you're just really good at making it look like that. How, how did you get into this world of online marketing? What, what, is it, this, the, what is it that you do that's not necessarily uh, technical, but what, what are you understanding beyond the, the, the idea of clicking buttons? Well, I mean, my, my career started o almost over 20 years ago. I started Back then, it used to be called multimedia. It wasn't even digital. So I started an agency almost 20 years ago. And uh, with little budget or no budget, you know, I was competing with agencies with television and everything. And, you know, digital was very easy as being straight out of school, starting an agency on your laptop, what software you had. So multimedia was an automatic shift on where we had a competitive edge. Um, and then after I sold my agency, I went to high tech and, you know, software development. I learned a lot of more of the technical stuff. So when I went back to back more into the marketing side, I realized that I had a competitive edge, understanding the highly technical things, and then also have the creative mind. So once I started putting those things together, I really fell in love with the analytics side. Uh, and I realized that was a competitive edge, that all my friends that started in the marketing and the creative side were all about the you know splash. Mm -hmm. and. And I was not afraid of the technical The awards side. and the trophies. And so all so, so when I combined both of those, I realized that it was almost, it was not even fair. It, it was, you know, back in the day, you know, eight, ten years ago, is when you were able to use a lot of this data on what you, people were actually doing without telling you. You know, I, back then I thought, you know, surveys and, you know, and focus groups were a bunch of BS because people lie a lot of times, you know, so focus groups are, are still good, but really the way they behave using the computer and digital, they're telling you without you asking them. So when I realized that you can use both of those things combined creative, it just gave you a competitive edge that most of the people who were on the creative side were totally afraid of. They were like, oh no, that's, we'll leave that to those technical people. Uh, oh yeah, the analytics person works for IT. Uh, so I realized that it was a competitive edge in which I can cheat in essence, you know, like people would, you know, cheat in gambling or whatever, using a lot of data and numbers. That's what it did. So you're not part of Sidekick. It's a ATDC select company. Um, you guys are really uh, defining what influencer marketing means. So I, I guess this is a good question for you. What is influencer marketing? Well, you know, influencer marketing five, six years ago was all about the macro influencers, which was, you know, celebrities, you know, and, you know, you big YouTube personalities. But where we're bringing in is the automation and, and the, you know, data 
and to be able to be an influencer is anybody who can recommend your brand. So whether it being a simple fan or a customer, all the way to an actual celebrity. So we're you know using big data and automation, taking influencer marketing much more than just the big celebrities, all the way down to the fans. So like you know like a Logitech used to just pay a couple big YouTubers. Now with our platform, they can bring in some of their mid you know, or small YouTubers and bring them in at scale uh, and lower their costs. So that, that's kind of what influencer is, is anybody who can tell, you know, it's really comes down to word of mouth marketing, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and a lot of the connotation with influencer marketing is about, you know, the Katy Perry's or the big celebrities, but really it, it's not, it's much more it's, on. It's people that you and I have never heard of, but there's pockets of people that just follow everything. Exactly. Just say, to right? give you like, I got to do a presentation tomorrow on this. Uh, there's, 15,000 macro influencers that have over a million audience, but there's 15 million micro influencers that have over 5,000, you know, followers and friends who are very, who are the very, you know, like you, you know, your personal Twitter handle has a couple of thousand because you produce content. You're, you're the prototypical micro influencer that can get a lot of people, you know, to do things, you know, and and that's where, you know. I like to eat micro green salads as well, because that's, that's what you do when you're a micro influencer. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I got three shots of tequila, so. <laughs> it wasn't a funny joke with or without tequila. That's just keep powering through it. <laughs> so so you, you mentioned big data. You mentioned automation. For folks that are like, what, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by automation? What do you mean by big data? The biggest thing is analyzing a large amount of, of, of current existing fans, customers uh, for a specific brand and looking at what their potential to be an influencer for your brand. Mm-hmm. Uh, so normally that's why it was done very manually. You know, mm-hmm. when you would, you, know, you would look at big YouTubers and you would do a lot of the valuation manually, look at the YouTube channels or go to a network and you would rent them for five grand. Uh, but the reality is, is you're sitting, a lot of brands are sitting on thousands. Uh, I, I, you know, I sit with a lot of brands and once we connect them into our Discover engine, I'm like, really, why are you going to pay someone $70,000 when you have 10 celebrities already following you who are already mm-hmm. part of your customer that, that literally all you have to do is reach out to them. You just didn't know they were there. So the, this whole uh, idea of influencer marketing has shifted because, because of the, the, the whole idea of social media channels and people who can be content creators, can be sharing thoughts, sharing ideas, sharing inf- information. And people can opt into what they're they're putting out on their streams, right? So they've created people a large following of people who are listening to what they have to say, um, not necessarily all you know with the intention of trying to monetize it, but they just they're doing it, right? And they're, they're they might be passionate about FIFA, they might be passionate about you know um, Battleground uh, or you know any any kind of game or about any kind of topic, right? It could be yeah, like it, shopping, it, it could be... I mean, it, it could be, you know, it could be everything from a nonprofit, you know, like, like for example, one of our customers is uh, they serve military families, you know. Uh, so a lot of their, their influencers are former veterans who are just trying to spare, you know, uh, spread awareness on, you know, suicide prevention. Um, so it doesn't really have to be just about selling a specific product. It's just spreading the word on a specific cause, uh, you know, gaming is one. Sports nutrition is a different one. You know, fact, one of our customers is uh, Muscle Tech and mm-hmm. Six Star Protein. They have their big guys. Like they're running a campaign right now to promote uh, their scholarship, and it's Gronk. Mm-hmm. You know, Gronk is from the New England, yeah, Patriots. New England Patriots. So they're running that campaign as a psychic, but they also have their brand ambassadors who are just 
college athletes who are just promoting their health and well business, you know, wellness, uh, and, and they're promoting their product. Those guys are a whole different spectrum being used by the same company. Mm. Uh, so before, it used to be about spending all their budget on these celebrities, but now they're realizing that these guys here serve a different purpose. Yeah, and your, your software is able to do that through auto automation, meaning that I don't have to copy and paste and send out to a distribution list of here's your tweets, here's your, your uh, updates on Instagram. It's more of... Here's a system they plug in, and then that information gets yeah, pushed over it, to it, them. Yeah, and the most important thing is what happens is, is, is a lot of these brands now are realizing that before it used to be about you know, sharing and hoping, hoping they, they get results. Now, since budgets are getting stricter, costs for the macro influencers are just going up, up, and up. So now they're trying to find out what's the R, true ROI. So a lot of times is they're wanting to find out who's actually doing it. You know, uh, we have a you know w one brand that works. You know, he, they 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 sign a campaign uh, uh, a contract with eight, a network of eighty influence eighty YouTubers. They ran a campaign with all of them, and one thing that they found out is when they actually were able to track results is that the guys who were in the bottom ten percent, some of those guys were actually producing more results than the. The guys who were named that had 10 times or 20 times mm. the audience because they just figured they didn't have to do anything and they were going to be lost in the shuffle. Uh, and really, of course, the brand, once they saw all those results, they're like, okay, some renegotiation for the next year. If not, we get rid of that contract. So, so what, are you, what are you learning about? What are some of these principles of success that, success that you're learning working with these people that have these passionate audio ba audience bases? It's verticals. You know, the goals and objectives of influencers are very diverse depending on what kind of verticals and what kind of channels. You know, so, you know, we work with some of the biggest brands, you know, in women's fashion, sports nutrition, in gaming. And, and now we're, you know, we're in talks with some big, like, record labels. They all have different objectives of what, you know, what success means. And that also entails the type of, of influencers and channels that they require in order to get those goals. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the fad of the social, you know, whatever social channels they think it's the end thing does not correlate with their business goals that they have. Uh, so that's one of the biggest things is it, it, uh, the majority of my team's time in the customer success side is educating uh, with those, you know, big brands, medium brands saying, hey, let me get this straight. You'll want to work with these types of influencers and advocates, but your overall business goals are down here. Uh, it's not possible. And a lot of times they're like, what do you mean it's not possible? It's like, look, you know, a perfect example is uh, a lot of sports nutrition brands want to work with nothing but Instagrammers. You know, uh, Instagram, you know, sports, you know, sports guy, fitness people, you know, but their CMOs are requiring sales and, and, and people going out and buying the product. But... The linking from Instagram is very minimal, so so Instagram is more about brand engagement and mm -hmm. awareness. Yeah, it's very so, visual driven. It's not like clicking links like yeah. Twitter. Or Facebook. So 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 the business goals and in the and what they think is the current fad because there's a lot of people posting content on it. It doesn't correlate, you know. So they might spend some money on it and then they realize they didn't get the results and they blend specific influencer marketing as a whole it's like they were actually in the wrong space mm. you know hey you actually if you need if your goal is to drive sales then you need to go focus on other influencers even though they might have a smaller reach well um 
again, I just like with Mike, I had a lot more questions. Fortunately, we'll, we'll have another segment where everyone uh, be asking each other questions. Um, where can people find you on, on the interwebs? Uh, well, Sidekick Twitter is on Team Sidekick. Okay. And for me, my, me personally, you know, I tell everybody, if you Google Roger Lopez and I'm not in the first five, six spots in Google, then you don't need to talk to me. So just Google <laughs> Roger Lopez and I should be in the top one through five, hopefully. That's an amazing thing to be able to tell you. <laughs> Thank you, Roger Lopez. You, you've survived the hot seat. All right. As, as you make way, uh, we'll and get some water. That'd be good. Um, let me invite in our third guest today. Um, I'm excited because uh, Amelia Davis, uh, she's with General Assembly here in Atlanta, um, also part of the hashtag I look like a developer movement. Um, Amelia is a local artist, adventure, ATL, that's Atlanta for those not from Atlanta, ATL enthusiast, uh, graduate of the University of Georgia with a degree so of nice. international affairs. I, yes. I have the degree of, nice. as well, right? Very nice. Um, minor in communication. You've worked on three continents? continents? Yes, I've in, worked in Uganda, Austria, Scotland, and the Philippines. Jeez, that's a lot. <laughs> now, after you were living abroad, you moved back to Atlanta, or moved to Atlanta, mm -hmm. got into the world of financial technology, um, then joined Sales Loft as one of their first account managers, a very proud of Atlanta company. Um, and now, uh, currently working with General Assembly as the associate local marketing producer. Right? Yes. And you, you were quite busy doing that, right? Uh, planning <laughs> workshops, events. Just a little bit. Probably, what was that? You said over 30 events last quarter? Um, no, we did more like 50 events last quarter. Dang. And we've already done around 50 events this quarter. So pretty busy. Oh, yeah. And then as a side hustle, you're working on ATL Assemble. A yes. Online platform, educate and unite Atlantans through technology. But what you really need to know Amelia about, uh, need to know about Amelia, is that she's got the largest collection of high fives. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, in a really loud laugh. Sorry for all of you. Our producer will take that one out. Uh, and including the gems like Thanksgiving, the stick shift, and crowd favorite, oh, the TIE Fighter. Can I, can I explain this? <laughs> no. We'll keep no. going. Yeah, okay. you can. So, so the first time we met, uh, I always uh, I give presentations and all that. She came to a, a fireside chat, and I always high-five the audience before, just to kind of create a connection. And she made a point afterward to come up and give me like an advanced lesson in high-fives. <laughs> And I was like amazed by it. So that's that's being that's a camp counselor. You can't help it. <laughs> so uh, let's let's dive deep into uh, the hashtag uh, yeah. that you, you guys are part of. So what what is this? I look like a developer hashtag, and and what what's it? What what was the origin story of that? Yeah, absolutely. So hashtag uh, I look like a developer is a brainchild of me not being able to sleep. I was up one night. Um, just mulling through. I think it was uh, a night after we had a women in tech breakfast. So uh, for those of you who are not familiar, General Assembly is a technology school. We're an international technology school. We teach classes in business, technology, and design. Um, so we do lots of events. And I came in and I, I wanted to really build the tech industry with women. So we'll uh, build the community of women here in Atlanta. And General Assembly had been doing this uh, women in tech breakfast and um, I've been able to see it grow through the past few years um, but basically there's such a need for women in tech right now uh, the last report I saw is around 34% of all mm. developers are women wow. which is definitely lower really, than the 52% really that women make up in the population right? absolutely um, and we've worked really hard to make uh, our community at General Assembly very inclusive. So we do lots of women in tech events, lots of minority in tech events, um, but women in tech is kind of our specialty right now. Um, so basically I was thinking about there, 
there are a lot of women who are looking for jobs that give them a good salary, give them a lot of flexibility with their work. They can work from home, um, and that that's challenging and always changing. But historically, coding and development has been very intimidating. So it's been a very male-dominated thing. And, and even coming, I came from the SaaS industry, and yeah. when I worked at Salesoft, I would go into the dev room, uh, kid around with the devs, but I would look at their computers and be like, I have no idea what they're doing. And I, I never even tried it because mm -hmm. to me it always seemed like it was something so hard, so mysterious. But then I came to General Assembly, and I think um, my boss is in the audience. The first day she made me write a line of code for the back-end system, and I was like, wait, that's it? Like, that's <laughs> The mystique the, is gone. Yeah, yeah. I was like, oh, this is something that, that, that's not that hard. Um, and so I came up with the idea, you know, instead of just – you know, me trying to plan an event, why don't I bring the tech community in Atlanta together for a cause? Mm -hmm. Because we're stronger. Yeah, and, that's, and that's really, you reached out to ATDC? I reached out to, Jen Bonet was the first person I thought of. I adore Jen Bonet. Um, she was the first person I reached out to and was like, hey, I have this idea. The, his, before there was a campaign that trended a few years ago on Twitter called hashtag I look like an engineer mm -hmm. and it was started um, after some controversy and and I, I get that plight of, I, I tell people all the time, I work for General Assembly and they're like, wait, you code? And they like they look me up and down and they're just shocked. Um, and, uh, and it's really annoying. So I'm sure as someone who is a full-time developer, that must be incredibly yeah. infu you know, like infuriating. Um, but I think that if we can come together as a community and start telling this message of, hey, women are coders too. We're, we're pretty good coders. Um, and there's a high demand. And we have women inviting women into the tech industry. And I think that that's actually the most important part mm. of this is you mm -hmm. have women in tech, women who code, and, and all these organizations coming together because we have to create an inclusive environment. So the tech system in Atlanta is, is developing and growing, and people like General Assembly and Sandbox, like we're the people who are actively molding this environment. And if we don't choose to mold an inclusive environment now, it's not going to be. And it's going to be like Silicon Valley. And that's not that's not the Atlanta I want to see. Mm -hmm. I want to see an Atlanta where the tech ecosystem is just as diverse as our population. Mm -hmm. um, and we have to be very intentional about this. So hashtag look like a developer is that first step at, or uh, is one of the steps. It's not the first step. There are a lot of women who have made uh, a lot of progress. Yeah, something in this like area. this isn't one is one fell swoop. There's there's got to be no, a lot no, of no, different no, no, things absolutely. that come together, right? These are I mean, this, this, this is, is not a good a, addition to that world. This is not a linear issue, and not every woman and not every person should be a developer. That's that's not where my core passion lies. Mm -hmm. But now it's something that's not scary to me. Yeah. Um, and I are so the goal the goal that I came up with is I just want to see 500 women just write their first line of code. Just do the same thing that I did in a fun and community environment where you have a woman teaching the lesson. You have women on stage who are actual coders and actual technicians talking about what it's like to be a, a, a woman in tech. So if we can create this environment so that women can come in and, and test it out, you know, I'm sure not all 500 women are going to go home and, you know, start their coding career, but, you know, maybe 10 of them. Mm -hmm. And if we just change 10 people's lives, like, that's amazing. Well, and it is interesting because then you get, you've get, um, you, you get enough people starting to do it, and then uh, th they become models for others, right? Exactly. Right? And so that's, that's part of the reason. That's, that's part of the idea is, like, so, so far we've taught 60 women. So if we can have those 60 women tell other women and, and, and invite other women into this, then 
we can actually see progress being made in the gender, in the technology gender gap, and that would be amazing. So another cool thing about it is that General Assembly Global picked up this campaign. I and saw is that, yeah. Doing it in in multiple continents, so it's doing it in like twelve campuses. Wow, that's amazing. Which is and Google just hopped on board as well. So Google devs have been tweeting about it, and it's it's been really cool to see. Um, and I'm not I'm not expecting it to be some huge fad on Twitter. I just want to see 500 women in Atlanta write their first. Well, yeah, they, code. you know, they, people who've studied crowds, like the physics of crowds, you only need just about five percent of the crowd to go in one way. That influences the rest of the crowd to go that way with them. Yeah. So. You don't need to change everybody. You just, just need to change the critical mass. Yeah. So the time that you spent abroad, like Uganda and, and Scotland and the Philippines, how does that really kind of shape your understanding and how you build and leverage communities? Yeah, um, I could talk about this for a long time. There are lots of things I learned abroad. Um, I'm a firm believer that you can learn more from a dinner table than you can from a book. Not that books aren't great. Mm-hmm. Um, one of those things I learned is the why. And I'm so critical about this now. Um, At General Assembly and in my business, I'm always going back to the why. Because if you can get people behind the why, you can get people behind your movement. Um, And so explaining to people and have people feel what you're doing is really important. I learned um, that doing some marketing in the Philippines. Um, I also learned how important enthusiasm is. Um, I tend to have enthusiasm in spades. I'm usually one of the more excited people in the room which I used to think was a, was a bad thing about me, but I now embrace as, as a really good thing because yeah. I can get other people excited about what I'm excited about. And, and that's so important. If, if you're trying to start a movement or trying to start something and you aren't excited about it, like yeah, how, who wants to be a part of it, how, right? how is anyone else going to be excited about it at all? Um, so it's about that. It's also about, um, I mentioned before, it's, uh, or it's about taking advantage of being in the right place at the right time as well and, and those little relationships. Um, and just being gracious with everyone you meet because you never know what's going to come of that. I met a brother and sister in Scotland at a, at a city tour um, and months later ended up living with them in the Philippines. <laughs> and it's, just, it's those little... You never would have been able to predict that when you first met No, them, there's, there's absolute... But that's how life works and that's why life is beautiful because you can't predict those things. So, so having that mentality of being gracious with whomever you're around at all... Like, it's it's really important. So what what lessons and, and insights have you um, you've, you've gained from this whole idea of getting the the women in technology community activated here in Atlanta? Yeah, um, man, building community is my favorite thing. That's what I'm about, um, and so it's it's been a fun and, and kind of a natural thing. Um, and also, I feel like it's kind of natural in Atlanta. Atlanta. Our tech community is incredibly collaborative, and I think it's a, it's a very special part of Atlanta um, that you and I collaborate mm-hmm. and that, you know, ATDC collaborates with us and Georgia Tech, and, and we all try to work together. And so I think that we can all rally around this message in particular, getting more women into tech um, but also I learned just the need for it. Mm. Um, we do lots of women in tech breakfasts, breakfasts and those, those always sell out because there's such a need for community. That's one of the Maslow needs is you mm-hmm. need to belong, you need to be in community. So if we don't create these spaces, there's, there's going to be a gap, there's going to be a lack. Um, and so creating these environments and these spaces. So out of our um, women in tech breakfast that we do quarterly, um, what, what happens at those is you have a panel of women who are in various 
aspects of tech because tech is really big and that's another part of this conversation is tech is so much more than just coding mm -hmm. you need digital marketers you need people who can yeah, talk and tell the story and, exactly yeah. and user experience and design and you need all these different parts and they all play a role um, but one of the things that we also learned from it is that there's such a need for mentorship and mentorship is something that hasn't been mastered in our city. And so um, we started doing the Stiletto Network Brunch hmm. where we bring um, a few ambassadors in. These are women that I, that come from my network and I can vouch for. Like Jen Bonet is one of them. Like mm -hmm. anything that they say, I, I would get behind. And then we have women come in. We all eat brunch together. And then I make everyone switch sheets every 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. So you're meeting everyone in the room and you have an opportunity to meet that mentor. But people usually need to be taught how to or how to meet a mentor and then how to, how to interact with the mentor, yeah, how to yeah, simple, ask a mentor. Simple like that people yeah. just don't really think about it. Well, that's, it's just it's not culturally natural for us. Well, we have uh, the next segment going to be starting, but before we get to that, where do people find you on the interwebs? Um, you can find General Assembly Atlanta at underscore GA Atlanta, um, and I'm on Twitter sometimes when I feel like it, at Amelia underscore, three underscores Davis. Three underscores. Wonderful. Wonderful. <laughs> but for you, there's three Amelia Davises. Try that one. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, you made it through the hot seat, Amelia. Congratulations. All right, let me get the other guest in here, and then we're going to switch from these fixed microphones down to the passive microphone. I'm going to be able to ask a question so I can get up and go over and get my, my drink refilled while, while you guys answer it. I can fill uh, it up for you. So bringing back uh, all three guests, uh, including all three coasts, all three Gs, all three, all three Gs for the A3C, uh, we've got uh, Mike Walbert and... Roger Lopez coming back to talk with Amelia Davis and myself. Now, uh, you guys have a chance to heard, hear, hear yourself, kind of hear each other talk, and I'm curious if there's any questions that came to your head. But, um, you, Roger, you had mentioned um, eSports and, like, this emergence of watching people game as a sport. Um, and, you know, here we are with hip-hop culture. Here we are with women in technology. Um, I'm curious, uh, what other things are you guys seeing? What kind of emerging communities and audiences that maybe esports is a good one, but maybe it's a different thing that, that you think's an interesting and intriguing emerging community that could connect other folks? Um, so at General Assembly, I, like I said before, I, I love creating communities. So I'm constantly trying to combine communities. And there's a lot around art and tech that I, be, being an artist myself, I find really, really fascinating. Because there's a lot of, you know, with technology advancing so much, oh man, the, the, the playing field is so much bigger than it was before. So art and tech is probably the most interesting fusion I see coming up. Um, because you also have like the user experience and like the wearable of it in as well. Like, there's some cool stuff. Yeah. I don't know if it's a community or a, a plague, but uh, <laughs> like with <laughs> I mean, I hate saying it. I mean, with Pokemon Go, like augmented reality, like interacting with things. Like I now when I'm walking around, I'm like, oh, that that company should be doing this with like augmented reality. Like, how's McDonald's not doing a game with like kids? Like. It just seems like that they've tapped on something that, like, what a game is and, and how, like, a digital and real world are kind of combining. Again, I don't know if this is, like, a, a community so much as, like, holy shit, this is the third cuss word of the day. Uh, it's going to be, like, can be huge. 
um, and how quickly You're making that. a Harry Potter one. Yeah, I mean, that, <laughs> uh, like how, how, like with a movie release or everything, like that should be like the marketing plan for so many people. Um, just seems like a, a big win. Well, you know, going to the Harry Potter and uh, and you know the Pokemon. The Pokemon was very focused on uh, not just not really kids, but it was more like a 25, 28. You know, the challenge comes with what I had to deal. With. You know, the Pokemon I already had that I literally did the research over half five years ago regarding augmented reality and knew how to do it because I, I had that idea with Elf on the Shelf. Uh, the problem comes in is with uh, regulations called COPA, uh, you know, which is uh, child privacy. So that's where a, a lot where a lot of it comes into play. Where you know, there's some cool things that you can be done. You know, uh, I had to go through the whole entire COPA certification back in the day. So m my whole entire perspective back in the day was that you can you know virtually you know uh, interact with the elf. So like I had already figured out our goal. My goal was to literally when you went to Target, you you would be able to then put your phone up, and the, the the book of the elf on the shelf would open up, and the elf would pop up and say hi to you, and you'd be able to talk to it and everything. Uh, so you know the beautiful thing about augmented reality has been around for about half a decade, and and uh, I got the ideas from Disney itself, you know, because that's what I was recruited to be to do is to actually turn Elf on the Shelf into the new Disney. Disney did something very very amazing almost half a decade ago. And uh, in, in New York, in their Disney store, you were able to walk up to a, this sign that said Disney in the middle of Times Square. And you were able to, you would stand there and on the bi their big screens in Times Square, you were able to then see the Disney princesses pop up in augmented reality and you'd be able to dance. So a lot, dance with them and everything. And that's kind of, I saw that video and it just kind of gave me this whole entire inspiration of augmented reality. But I think that's communities of virtual, in reality, in you know, augmented reality, we don't even we haven't even touched the beginning. You know, that's what my son thinks right now. He was literally my beta tester when he was a kid uh, for all the games. Yeah, he was the beta tester for all my games. I mean, he's the reason. He's yeah. actually years ago we were having him to work on the farm. Now we're having yeah. him to have yeah. beta tester. Yeah, he was testing an app when he was only two years old. He was going he was going to Marietta to the Humane Society with a game that was not live yet. And kids would be like, how did you get an elf on the shelf? I was like, that was my dad. You know, it's like, oh, it's not live yet, you know. But really, is we're barely touching the touch point of those communities of these kids who only know touching and virtual. Mm -hmm. And we haven't even yet touched. We think that we're ahead of the curve. These kids think and experience everything in a different way. Yeah. And, and I think that's where the next level of communities is it's a little bit on the scary side, you know, because they won't know some of the personal emotions and relationships and everything, and, and, you know, uh, and I'm very worried, but I'm almost almost on the pushing the edge because I know how much ahead it makes them, so. Yeah, it, it, it is interesting to see this whole phenomenon of Pokemon Go, and, and, and that's, you know, to have, you know, the idea of crowds on fire, there has to be some sort of will, right? There has to be some sort of desire, some sort of want of wanting to be connected, There's right? some connect, yeah, because that, I think Pokemon Go is such a thing because, like, people grew up with that. Like, man, like the target, like target market was, a, with it, right? yeah, it was at the target age for that just to blow up. And people, I think there was just a void, and it's, 
it's a weird way of community, but people are so hungry for a community, and yeah. Like, Pokemon starts in, in Japan, right? With an anime and cards, trading cards. Was it Kansas? Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, but, same but, thing, right? But they, the, 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 the actual, <laughs> the design of it, the guy who created it was, created these trading cards in order to get people out. He noticed people were kind of like not going out, so he wanted to create trading cards that forced social interaction. Oh. And so this whole idea of the, of the augmented reality of Pokemon Go is, was a, the next iteration of how you got people out. But you, you know, let's connect the dots, right? I'm, I'm looking at it, and I, I remember it was after I was a kid, and I was like, I don't know, teenager, college, or whatever, and I was like, oh, there's something. And then the cartoon comes on. Then the Nintendo DS comes out, and that seems to be where a lot of people got that connectivity and that, that you know, the community or that experience, that shared experience. Um, and now, all of a sudden, we have these supercomputers in our pockets that allows for people to, to do that. And I remember my son, my son's dead, 15-year-old, stays up uh, over the weekend uh, when it came out to be able to Google search an Australia address to create an iTunes account that was Australia so that he could download the app because it was released in Australia before the U.S. So he was playing it like at 3 in the morning um, before it released Way there. too smart for his own then, good, yeah, I'm no, sure. It's crazy, yeah, to be the father of this son. Uh, and then, then, then we, we had moved just into a new house, and he's walking in the middle of the, like at like 10 o'clock at night through this forested area that we find out after the fact is, is rife, was rife with copperheads. And, and he's just like trying to chase and catch them all. I mean, uh, people have fallen off of cliffs and found dead people. Found dead people? Yeah. Oh. This girl was searching for oh, Pokemon man. and she found a dead she person. Found a dead body, yeah. Well, that's not really a crowd on fire, but. Uh, <laughs> wow. Well. So, right so, so here, it's a good example of this was such a latent potential that hadn't been tapped. Yeah. I mean, what, what, what are you guys seeing looking out there? What other crowds that could be on fire, like that, if you sparked it right? What's not being connected right now? I, at least for this city, I think that there's a disconnect between, you mentioned it earlier, people who are doing good to advance our city and the crowds of people who love Atlanta but don't know how to get involved and there's a lack of information and there's a lack of connection that I'm working on, but that's what I see. Yeah, it's interesting. It's funny, it came up the other day, like we had uh, a buddy reach out and say, hey, you know, like someone who's a successful actually casting agency that does a lot of production and video production, they're like, hey, we're looking to help um, lend our time, resources, and, and money for an, a, a nonprofit. And do you know anyone like working with kids and, and video production? One of our finalists in A3C Action is a nonprofit that helps and teaches kids how to do video production. And it, I think there's a lot of misconnections, in, in yeah. to, to your point, that are. Um, a lot of really hungry, hardworking people that have their head down and aren't necessarily out there making the connections. But to me, like a lot of people don't like, there are a lot of like tight communities and not a lot of connections because that's unfortunately human nature. Like it's really hard to connect people. People get in their own little worlds and they live there. Like it's, yeah. it's, exa yeah. it's tiring and exhausting to have these, to, to like continue yeah. to make new connections. Yeah, w one big group that we've had the t conversations you know, with when you know you were with Hippopotamus, and and it's been brought up. I get a lot of times uh, asked to speak, like at uh, entrepreneur, you know, conferences and stuff like that. So one big huge disconnect, and that we're starting to have it combined, is the non-tech startup, you know, entrepreneur world. You know, because like, I, I volunteer with like Hispanic entrepreneurs, the old small business that attend a small business development comp, you know, uh, office versus the ATDC 
high tech startup, you know, and, and it's funny because yeah, kind of the show. mom and pop, you know, entrepreneurs. And I remember I was I spoke at a conference for Hispanic women entrepreneurs, and and I told them they should, they should come to digital school and they should come to events here, and and, and she was like, and she kind of downplay herself. She's like, you know, she was a she had started an insurance company, women insurance company, very successful. They're like, oh, I don't have nothing to give to them. I was like. You don't understand. You have one of the hardest skills that most tech entrepreneurs mm -hmm. don't know is hardcore sales and how do you structure commission? How do you bring in on those people that you had to do starting a, a, a agency, an insurance agency from scratch? Yep. I was like, do you know how much value you could provide to a lot of tech startups that don't know jack crap? They can build a product, but they don't know how to sell it. Yeah, you know, it's funny you say that because in in Durham, um, the the American Underground um, you know, has got this really great complex in the old American Tobacco Factory and. They're doing, they're connecting with the HBCU there in, in Durham, getting folks within that community who are mom and pop shops who know how to build recurring customer bases, know how to do promotions, and actually taking folks from the disadvantaged communities and getting them connected to the, the high tech startup folks who don't understand the simple people skills that we take for advantage. Yeah, yeah for advantage. And, and that's, you know, that's a, a thing that I, I was amazed that that lady who told me, and when I explained it to her, she was just like, oh, really, that, that's valuable? I was like, yeah. You could sit with the CEO of a company that raised $1 million, and you could sit down there and probably teach their business development VP on how to set up a sales process. Mm -hmm. They could probably give you tips on the technical stuff or the social media stuff that they're, that's all they know about. And she was just like, oh, I've never thought about that. But I think that's a big, dis it, it, that disconnect is even in Silicon Valley. You know, it's everywhere. And I think the community that actually leverages that and helps both of those pieces will literally help both sides of the right. equation. And one, one thing I'd love to see, I mean, you, you, there's what, like six kind of tech hub, tech centers in the city, uh, especially a, a city that is uh, so deep rooted in like civic engagement, social justice, like, Outside of the center for or where I work, CCI, which I stumble over every time, uh, there aren't centers for civic leaders. There aren't centers for nonprofits. There aren't these great resources and pools of people. Kind of like again, like if you have these work share spaces for those civic leaders, like that energy that you can create in these spaces, like again, it's, right? It's money. Like you build these places because there's a huge business behind tech sector. There's not a huge business in the nonprofit world, but I think also helping those people monetize. One of the things we do in our business training for two days is don't just ask for handouts all the time. How are you creating a sustainable, you know, where is the revenue stream? How are you, you know, it's not, it can't just be foundations. You have to, you know, have some sort of revenue stream here. So, um, that, that type of resource would be great too. I think if cities and, and if there is one city on the planet that should really embrace this and and take south downtown and downtown and turn these beautiful complexes that have you know dozens of really smart tech folks and and try to do something very similar in the nonprofit or uh you know the civic leaders and justice world and find those people and bring them together and letting them help each other yeah it really is about cross-pollinating and getting people connected and, yeah. i mean there's, it's, there's not everyone's got something to offer to them absolutely so um, speaking of crowds on fire, uh, we do have folks that are in the audience, and um, I'm hoping uh, somebody's sitting there just on fire with a question to, to ask of the of our, our guests. Uh, uh, we got uh, we got our sound engineer. 
Okay, so in, in everybody's uh, talk, there's some sort of um, word of mouth for growing your crowds. I was wondering how much emphasis you have with your, your different products, either that's A3C, General Assembly, or Sidekick, with just word of mouth. If, like, I'll make it easy. First answer, like a scale from one to 10, how much do you um, concentrate on word of mouth versus other types of marketing? Yeah, and word of mouth now is probably as much digital as it is actual word of mouth, right? I mean, like when people say word of mouth, it's almost social sharing. It is um, everything uh, and then having things you can do, just word, actual physical word of mouth, which people don't talk anymore. So uh, they listen to podcasts, but they don't even talk to each other. Like we're, the only way that we can even talk to each other is through a microphone. Uh, no, but there's some th things we do is try to build community. I think that's the key with every with everyone that, that we talk about. It's, it's building a community and people that connect with your brand. So a couple of things we do. Um, one thing, we have a, a monthly event that is free, RCP. We buy folks drinks. We try to have a good time, and it really brings the community together. So that is a physical space that people can interact with other brands, ask questions, and kind of connect with the, the hip-hop community. And tons of artists and creatives come out, and it's really cool. Outside of that, we really try to give people – um, tools to share our story online. So whether that's, um, you know, this year we, we brought in an editor-in-chief and do a lot of stories about the community, a lot of interviews and a lot of kind of original fresh content. And then we, you know, with our extended, you know, our alumni and extended kind of family, just giving them as much resources as they can to share and, and talk about us. And then we have an ambassador program. We have probably 500 ambassadors in our ambassador program. So there are tools that you can get people to do it, but you really try to have them excited about your brand and whatever you can do. I mean, they'll, they'll do it for you, but get them excited. And if you don't give them the tools and resources, one, get them excited. And then two, what are they, when they talk about things, what do they talk about? So. Yeah, for us is probably almost 80% is focused on the word of mouth. Um, you know, that's how we started with is being mainly a word of mouth type of platform. As we started building more of the influencer piece uh, and, you know, the majority of work right now is is educating some of our big brands, realizing that they can combine the influencer piece and the audience, their audiences, the influencers' audiences into word of mouth, and, and thinking of them both combined. Uh, they've been thinking of you know normally of them being separate, you know, and we've been telling them and we've been you know educating them and you know hey if you use the platform 100% way, it's you know, your whole essence is getting customers uh, and thinking about how do those influencers then drive their fans to them drive word of mouth. And that's kind of has been the biggest, you know, uh, work in content and education is educating that both of those are combined, not separate, uh, because some brands will have it separate. You know, word of mouth might be run by a different department, a different group. And, and the influencers might be run by a different department and us educating that, hey, they're, they're the same thing, you know, because that's the only way that you're going to get new customers if you combine both of those things. So pretty much the majority of our legwork is education and, and realizing that, hey, you know what, you did this initially to do get word of getting word of mouth, you know, even though you weren't able to see it, you just hoped that it happened. Uh, and thinking about that strategy on how, you know, a, a perfect example would be is we have a big agency in Europe and they're running this big campaign with uh, Peugeot, they're a car company, and they were giving, they're giving these uh, 50 Peugeots to like these bloggers all over the country using our platform. 
But the agency only pitched and thought about like what the influencer is going to do. You know, and they're using our platform and they're one of our agency partners. And none of the planning was done for their fans and how they were interacted, interacting. And, you know, hey, how, you know, what do you have in the system built out in this campaign for their fans to interact with what they're doing? And they were like, oh, yeah, we, you know, we didn't think about that. It's like it's a natural being, you know, because they hadn't had to think about those things combined. You know, so literally them being in Europe is literally having to just educate over the internet, explaining how they got to think in a different way that everything's word of mouth. You know, all full marketing, unless it's completely ad, it's all about them talking. You know, so that's the biggest thing is people hear word of mouth and it's been done very organic, you know, kind of like a flyer. You know, uh, every single piece of content that you create has to have that in mind. And, and you know, a perfect example is when you create shareable content, a lot of times you create it as an ad and it shouldn't be that way. You know, so if you create, you know, like I say, in your website, when someone's going to, you click on the share settings, when someone shares, you think of it, oh, just do the generic, what we would post on social, but it's designed to be word of mouth, a simple action like that. So what you set up in the sharing is, the way I usually tell is, if you were to give a flyer to someone, you're telling them to give it to their friends. Would you make it as if you were sharing that flyer? No, you would actually create the letter as if they're writing it themselves over to, that, to their friend or family. And that's like where it goes down to the essence of word of mouth is you got to take it into the digital side is when you're creating content or even small widgets on that a fan's going to share, you want to think about it. What would they potentially say is they were actually saying it in person. So that's one of the biggest things you guys have to think about. Yeah, it, it reminds me of this maxim I always share with people is that not everybody cares about what you're, you're wanting to tell people. You know, not everyone cares what your cause is. Not everyone cares what your product is, but somebody does. So find those somebodies, and then the next level, which is you're talking about, is give those somebodies some uh, tools to go out and reach the other people that they know to bring them in to become somebodies. And give them like best practice on, you know, if, if, if someone who's actually told someone what works, right. you know, right. from their verbiage, and then you can tweak it to your language. So. Yeah. So. Um, we focus a lot on the experiential part of it because if someone comes to an event or comes to our campus and they have a bad experience, it's going to be automatically bad word of mouth. So at the forefront, I think uh, word of mouth is a lot how General Assembly got started. It started as a co-working space in New York City, and then they discovered that there was a need for uh, for more education because they saw their attendants teaching each other things. They're like, huh, let's offer you know classes every once in a while for our members and then it just kind of grew from there because there was a need and where there's there, there's a need and a good experience people are going to talk about it and people are going to promote that um, I think that social media wise it's something that we want to do better we want to share more stories about our graduates because we have some amazing graduates that have gone on to do just phenomenal things and work for really cool companies and so I think that if, if other people can hear about hey this is what happened this is how I changed my life I think it's it's that kind of content and that kind of sharing that that's really cool Got another another question from the audience come on up and tell us who you are and what's your question cool uh, hi my name is Eric Pate and I'm a senior at uh, Georgia Tech and uh, my questions for Roger 
Um, so my question is, how do you feel about balancing the technical capability to harvest user data? Because you know there's so many ways versus the ethical duty to kind of respect user privacy. You know, in an age where nation states have explicitly targeted advertising companies, uh, what steps can marketers take to protect user privacy while still being effective? Well, uh, one of the biggest things is, uh, is using opt-in features. So we're, like for example, us, we're the first opt-in influencer advocate program because we, you know, I remember back in the day, you know, 15 years ago when email marketing, before it was about renting emails, renting, you know, or buying email, you know, and we realized that at first it worked. Over time, you, you know, permission marketing works the best. And now it's the norm, you know, uh, right now is the norm that, you know, you opt in people with what information they want to have. You know, so that's one of the biggest education pieces in ours is explaining to the brands is, yeah, I know you've been trained to go into these influencer networks where you pay someone a thousand dollars who knows absolutely nothing about your product and you want them to talk about it. Now it's the age of now is happening. The same thing that happened with email marketing is that you're wanting to get permission and explaining on what you want them to talk over time. So that's one of the key things is, you know, and it's happened already. You know, a lot of brands are like, oh, no, but it's never worked that way. I was like, and I have to kind of, you know, my team has to a lot of explain about it. It's like, it's already happened before. You did it with your email. And then and they think about it. They're like, oh, yeah. I was like, would you buy an email list right now? Or will you rent an email list? So that's what you've been doing for the last five years with influencers. So a lot of, that's one of the key kind of things is the opt-in permission marketing that you know happened 15 years ago with email marketing is doing the same thing with like influencers asking them the permission you this is what our brand is this is what i want you to talk about you know you guys have that with your brand ambassadors on your website so you're specifically asking them who they are what they do i did my research so yeah, there you go uh, your brand ambassador application is asking them exactly why so that when you invite them to spread the word is specifically to what they care about. So that's one of the key things on how you get around that. Wonderful. You guys got anything else to add on that? Really good stuff. All right, I got one more time for one more audience question. Who, who are you and what's your question? Hi, I'm Carrie, and I'm curious what's the biggest mistake you can make with a passionate audience? Oh. <laughs> I mean, yeah, they're. they're Lots of mistakes. Um, telling the wrong story. Um, I think this is something that we learned earlier on. I don't know if this is completely the right answer to your question, but um, when General Assembly first moved to Atlanta, we had a huge space, beautiful space in Pont City Market, and we were like, hey, everyone needs to know about us. And so we kept doing all these partner events and bringing in people because, we, A, we have amazing partners and just you know wanted to do fun things, get people into our space knowing about us. But then we started to see that people thought we were an event space. So people weren't, even though like I was standing at the front and being like, hi, I'm Amelia, I work here at General Assembly, like people just weren't getting that. So you have to be careful about how and what story you tell. Um, I think that's the biggest, what's the mistake you can make with audiences? Um, I don't know if it's the biggest mistake, but I would say kind of keep and maintain the relationship. Oh, yeah. So after A3C, how are we communicating with folks year round? Like, we do a survey after every year and ask about their experience. So 
uh, are trying to get as much insight as possible and really want the negatives more than the positives. If they had a great time, awesome, but we'd really like to hear like what went poorly so that we can try to make it better. Um, so I think, uh, and then throughout the year round, like we like these events and stuff we try to do with, with our audience and we're trying to do more stuff around the country and, and take our brand other places. But I think it really is, um, one we saw is our, our audience love what we did in five days, but they're like, we need more like, the, you know, just kind of listen to your audience. But I think, um, an event like ours, it is five days. It's, it's appreciating them on the sixth day and saying, Hey guys, we hope you had a good time. Anything we learned, like we're trying to do better. We know we we know we can do better. We're not perfect. So I, I think the biggest thing with, you know, biggest mistake with audience and I'm, you know, this is a bad thing being, uh, up is overreacting over a 0.05% loud people. A lot of brands do that. And I could tell you a story is, oh, yeah. I remember, uh, I got going to hate. Yeah, I'm going to hate, <laughs> but I want to give you, I, I remember, I, you know, I was with a certain company. You guys probably already, it's already been mentioned. I got an email from, from someone who in, in the social media team, had emailed the CEO, Hey, we need to change. Everybody's upset. Everybody's upset about this specific type of campaign. We need to change. CEO emails me saying, hey, everybody's screaming. They're upset. I, I kind of said uh, BS. So what I then look back is look through every single email comment multiplied by 100,000, looked at all the data. We were about to make a business decision based on 0.052% of because there's two people who were screaming that would have cost us a lot of money and, and i literally my i call it the roger email pimp slap i emailed the entire everybody who was in that kind of like to put it in place it's like are you telling me you want us to make a business decision on this person based on this 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 which equals 0.05 percent um are you sure you want me to do that and because i literally you know, yeah, it was like, oh, yeah. You know, in many companies, because that person happens to reach the CEO or the VP or the whatever, you know, you know, then says it to the CEO, says, hey, everybody's complaining about this. Here's a complaint. A completely business decision switch just because someone wants to be able to scream. And it happens at everything from schools to everything. So really look at, you know, when someone is screaming to make sure that that really is the voice of the entire audience uh, and not make a decision that literally will kick you in the butt three months later when you realize, hey, our sales numbers went down. It might have been that one thing that we just need, did a knee-jerk reaction. Walmart is a perfect one that they have so much data that they know that uh, it, it, you know, if someone complains about a certain thing, is it worth it or just give them the free product or they know when it, it is. You know, so you just have to look at the whole entire picture and not make a knee-jerk knee, knee reaction, changing your whole entire product, changing how you do something, just because one person happens to scream or happens to know a direct connection to a decision maker, so. Yeah, I was just gonna like applaud that. Like, I, th I think like a brand with ours where everyone has their own, you know, megaphone, like social media and, and you can post something or something happens and Two, two, two people get upset online, you're like, oh man, like that would a bad decision, but it really is, it has no reflect on you know, the larger kind of community and there's no data behind it. So it, when you say that, it just it really resonated with me because it's something that we deal with all the time, just Scott's point, haters gonna hate, like, you know, not everything we do is gonna be liked. 
and especially you know an event like ours it touches so many people and it's it's a really a lot of people are passionate hip-hop is, is a very passionate community so uh you know it, it's funny man yeah i just i a hundred stories i can think well, of like that and, and I'm, I'm thinking you know this this was really clear to me when i um some, some people may have heard the story i was part of the, the co-strategist behind the Sarah Palin Alaska TV show's digital strategy, right? And so here's a, here's a show on TLC Discovery Channel with Sarah Palin after her vice president's candidacy, right? And so it is inherently like this third rail of social media, right? And, and here we are launching this campaign. There's, there's so many different funny, fun parts of this story, but I remember walking... Uh, and and uh, walking in Boston, I was living in Boston at the time, and it was a Saturday, and we were, I was with my son, we were walking around, we were checking out Fenway Park, and my phone's just blowing up on a Saturday afternoon because this really was a bar fight that just showed up. It was, it was people who either loved Sarah Palin or hated Sarah Palin, and it's a TV show about Alaska, I mean, and family and adventure, and it just so happened to be Sarah Palin's family, right? <laughs> So we knew our whole strategy was like, we know this is going to be a, you know, a polarization effect, right? So flood the zone with other conversation topics, right? Talk about the media's reaction to the show. Talk about the cultural aspects of the show. Talk about, you know, the, um, you know, give some previews of what's coming up next or talk about, uh, uh, talk about people talking about it. You know, do a lot of stuff. Yeah, and, and really just emphasizing, look, this is about, family it's about alaska it's about adventure and and you may think about what you want and, and when i when i came in I, when we first started i was like taking a very active role on people people come on let's be reasonable that is like the dumbest <laughs> d- dumbest thing to say to people who are wholly irrational and just on fire and and and, and so it takes me to yeah, it takes me. It takes me to the thought of the the frontier, uh, having a bar on the frontier where there's just a fight showing up, right? It's there's. It's not your fight. It's just they had been fighting for weeks, and they they decided to come to your bar and fight in your bar, and you're like, all right, get the hell out of my bar. This is not for people who want to fight in my bar. You know. So yes. Yeah, so to your point, if we would have listened to the the four or five people who were just being completely unreasonable, it would have ruined it for and and ruined it for everyone else throughout the duration of that show. Because by the time we got to the show, people were like, look, I am a diehard Democrat or I'm a diehard Republican. I never thought I would have interacted with somebody from the other end of the political spectrum. But because you guys have been listening and and not taking the we got rid of the people that were making uh, trouble and we let people who wanted to say that. What? We, Should you admit to that? No, we, we were very clear on that. Are like, these on are the rules. Are Two rules. Alive? You will show respect to other people or you're getting the hell out of here. We got We did. <laughs> There's this really there's a there's this real beautiful thing of Facebook and Twitter being private uh, media companies. You can control your audiences, right? And so we banned people from the community. Get out of here. We will banish you. So I think the biggest mistake is to think that you have to please everybody, and you just say, look, there are certain expectations. Live within those expectations. And to your point, Roger, don't listen to everybody. But some people just have a problem. And they're just, they want, they want to share that problem with you regardless of what your product is, right? <laughs> All right. So we have fully burned more than an hour of everyone's time. I've had a fun time. I'm glad that you guys are part of this. Glad everyone could be part of it. So thank you very much.
Let's do a quick around the horn. And uh, uh, if you want to promote something, uh, hype something, uh, go for it. Uh, we'll start with Mike and then uh, we'll go back. Oh, we'll just start with Mike and end with me. You guys decide who's second. Yeah, I'd like to uh, promote General Assembly. I think it's a great, great organization and they do wonderful things. They're a partner with us. We try to, so another thing I love about A3C is we literally look for really cool people that we want to partner with and, and try to have this, what we call a wiki event. So that's, it's touched and, and put together by the larger community. So this podcast will be, uh, hopefully the next time you hear it, will be live at A3C. Um, and then General Assembly is doing some, some content at I'm A3C as well. I'm teaching intro to start community. Yeah. I'm taking, taking Scott's spot. There you go. That's my pro That's my um, tomorrow at 6.30 at General Assembly, we're having our next hashtag I look like a developer event. So I don't know if this is going to be out in time. How often does that happen? It happens once a month. So the next one's on October 26th. So October 26th, put it in your calendar. So this is where you, um, anyone can come ah, this year. Um, anyone can come hear a panel um, of amazing women for a few minutes and then just write your first line of code. So if you or anyone you know is interested and just needs to be introduced to technology, that's your best opportunity, October 26th. Yeah, I mean, you know, the biggest thing I can for right now is, you know, follow Sandbox and TechSquare and, you know, they're, you know, them and Hypopotamus have always been, you know, they're the ones who probably have, I mean, I met him the first, second week when I arrived in Atlanta, and you're still with Elf on the Shelf. Yeah, I was still Elf on the and Shelf, I, and you know, and I got suckered in before they even opened Hype, and I, I, I've been, you know, I, my career started in, you know, in the Silicon Valley, and it gave me the first feel like, oh, okay, I can start back that feeling again, and that's kind of, you know, so the more people, you know, belong to this community, the more people to share, um, you know, you know, the better that. You know, longer I'll stay in Atlanta, and my wife. Well, my wife wants me to stay in Atlanta. I love Atlanta, but now, but yeah, that's. We we love that your wife loves Atlanta. We we want you to stay here, Roger. That's like the welcome mat of Atlanta. Too. I am a welcome mat in many ways. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah, there's a lot of mud that there's been a lot of mud that's left on my back. Thank you, everybody. So uh, if you if you're on the Twitters and the Instagrams at Sandbox ATL at Tech Square T Tech SQ at ATL. Tech SQATL, excuse me. Scotty handles me. A3C, Team Sidekick, underscore GA Atlanta, uh, or just Google all that stuff. Gosh, come on. Or look in the notes. We've got all that stuff linked out. My God, we'll make the hyperlinks happen. Um, all right, so thanks. Uh, hey, thank you, everyone, for joining us tonight for the Hump Day Exchange. Another, I believe this is episode four in the books. Um, thank you to our guests, Mike Walbert, Roger Lopez, Amelia Davis, and all of our strategic partners, AT&T Foundry, ATDC, Scheller, and our newest partners, Keysight Technologies, and MARTA. By the time you hear this, we'll have already announced the fact that we have an amazing year-long partnership with MARTA to do a series of hackathons to make the writer experience better and increase writerships. I'm super excited about that. Be sure to check out TechSquareATL.com for regular stories about TechSquare. Learn more about Sandbox ATL Membership Club at SandboxATL.com and book your breakthrough event at BookTheGarage.com, which we have been recording in. And a final thanks to you, our listeners. If you like what you're hearing, we'd love for you to share it with everyone else you know. So thank you very much. Good night, everyone. TechSquare ATL is a media studio connecting you to the heart of Atlanta's tech community. 
Copyright Sandbox Communities, LLC.